1: Remember Chance the Gardener, the character in Being There. Chance uh, has been raised in isolation. Uh, There's something wrong with him. Most of his information has come from television. He doesn't really know anything. But as he ventures out into the world, he is mistaken for a savant. People who are so hungry for leadership, for some kind of -of out-of-the-box view of a chaotic world, gravitate towards him. It's clear at the end of the movie, even though he's a complete fool, he's going to become president. And in his new book, critic James Poniewozik paints a similar picture of Donald Trump, a product of television, somebody who knew the world through television, who became known through television, who, in essence, is a television character. We'll talk more about that after the news.
0: For some people, the ultimate goal in life has been becoming the President of the United States. Would you like to be the President of the United States? I really don't believe I would, Ronald. Why wouldn't you dedicate yourself to public service? Because I think it's a very mean life. And I also see it as somebody with strong views and somebody with the kind of views that are maybe a little bit unpopular, which may be right, but may be unpopular wouldn't necessarily have a chance of getting elected against somebody with no great brain but a big smile. And that's a sad commentary for the political process. Television in a strange way has ruined that process, hasn't it? It's hurt the process very much. I mean, the Abraham Lincolns of the world. Abraham Lincoln would probably not be electable today because of television. He was not a handsome man, and he did not smile at all. He would not be considered to be a prime candidate for the presidency, and that's a shame, isn't it? The country, if we had the one man, and it's really not that big a situation. You know, people say, well, what could anybody do as president? The one man could turn this country around. The one proper president could turn this country around. I firmly believe that.
1: All right. That's uh, Donald Trump. I think you knew that. Uh, but it's 1980. He's talking to Rona Barrett, uh, October 6th, 1980. So we're right on the cusp, uh, actually, of a tel- television and movie actor getting elected president, a guy who was pretty good looking and did smile. Apparently, Abraham Lincoln, uh, who I'm sure Trump knew nothing about, <laughs> except what he'd seen on television or something, uh, was not like that. But So we were going to have a president who was an actor and sometimes seemed to be acting as president and also seemed to occasionally confuse television and movie scripts that he'd been involved with with reality. Um, so uh, Trump, uh, meanwhile, is kind of saying a guy like him who can never get elected president, he, he might have been right at that moment. But as James Panoisic illustrates in his new book, Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television, and the Fracturing of America— television and media and the way in which our entertainment culture overlap with our political process was going to change over the ensuing 35 years in such a way that obviously somebody like Donald Trump, uh, even the way that he describes himself, uh, could win the presidency and did. So James Ponowazek is with us right now. Uh, It's exciting to have you. uh, And uh, what else do I need to say before we get going here? Uh, Well, that you're chief television critic for The New York Times. So... um, so we just listen to that clip we hear Trump essentially saying that he couldn't someone like him could never make it and and in many ways the whole thrust of your book is asking the question well what changed you yeah. know what changed in the in those 35 years i don't know you want to pick one or two things to get us started
2: Sure. I mean, I mean, I I think that's exactly right. It's how did we get there from here? Cause it, because I think he was essentially right. Somebody like the Donald Trump that we see today, you know, scowling, angry, provoke, provoking, um, you know, probably could not have gotten elected in the TV era of that time. And, you know, a couple of things that, that happened of, uh, over the course of that time, sort of the two parallel stories of the book, is number one, uh, that Donald Trump made himself into a television celebrity he he is essentially i think he is he is more significant to the country as kind of a, a 35 year tv performance a tv character than as you know an actual biographical person number one and number two television changed and the larger electronic media change and the 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 nutshell uh, you know, qu- quick description of how it changed is that it went from a mass medium to a niche medium. We went from the time when there were three major networks and everything on the air sort of had to be broadly, uh, you know, often blandly appealing to a point when you have... All sorts of media outlets that are micro targeted at micro audiences, and their raison d'etre is to provide things that are not for everybody, but that are very specifically for an intensely interested group. And that both changes the business of television, obviously, but it also kind of changes the tone and the content of, of television so that, you know, it becomes And becomes a more hospitable environment for more polarizing figures. So, you know, broad strokes, I think those are the big things that changed from then to here.
1: Yeah, and we're going to explore all of those things, uh, uh, if we have enough time uh, here as we go along. I want to begin though, kind of where you begin, which is the miseducation of Donald Trump, or like how how does he, uh, even as a child, we don't, one of the things that fascinates me about Trump is, he doesn't really cite culture that much, specific instances of popular culture we we know i don't know who his favorite beetle is and probably neither do you i learned more from your book about what a movie is to him or what television is to him than i've learned studying studying him pretty closely though these last few years so uh, it's an interesting question anyway that you explore how how did he study television what what was popular culture to him as he grew up
2: yeah, you know, I don't know if he studied television so much as he intuited it. It is sort of interesting that he is somebody who is both a, a creature of popular culture and yet has very specific interests and, and, and seeming blank spots. But, you know, I, I think it's when you look at his early life, uh, when you look at uh, The Art of the Deal, for instance, you know, his, his first book, um, he doesn't talk a lot about his childhood. Uh, but one of the few memories that he relates is watching his mother, uh, who was a Scottish emigre, uh, sit down in front of the television all day when he was about seven years old and watch the coronation of Queen Elizabeth on television. And it's you know it's sort of the first you know it's the first time that we have seen the live or almost live the coronation of a monarch, and it's it's kind of an example of the new world that kids of his era are being introduced to, you know, where there is suddenly this second virtual place in your living room that can, you know, bring you an ocean away and show you these images of grandeur and majesty and ceremony. And, you know, he talks about uh, how his mother was swept away by the the, the glamour and the, the ornament of it all, uh, as opposed to his father, who was much more practical and business-minded. Uh, and, 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 you know, describes it as sort of a formative experience for him in that way. I th- but I think in another way, it was really, uh, it, it was an example of how, you know, it, it, he was starting to realize the power of this new thing that existed in the world right you have the contrast between this and his father's real estate business well nobody's mother sits around all day entranced by the workings of a construction crane right <laughs> you know but television like that's magic you know it's it's literally something almost magical and he i think decided early on he 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 early on in his career he toyed with the idea of going off to, to Hollywood and working in the entertainment business. And then he, he decided not to, but he said early on, I'm going to bring show business into real estate. And what I think that essentially meant for him was that, you know, having seen this, you know, the, gotten this glimpse of the, this magic power of showbiz glamour, uh, he knew that, that courting celebrity uh, was sort of, that was a power that you could leverage into other things.
1: Right. So um, I want to stay a little bit with uh, his the time of his childhood and yeah. things that he might have been influenced by just for uh, another minute or two. So sure. we're going to hear from uh, The Magical World of Disney, Season 1, Episode 14, Davy Crockett Goes to Congress. I think we're hearing of uh, Fess Parker here as Davy Crockett.
3: Why, Davy, I didn't
0: expect you back for a week. I know. Now, Davy, if you're worried about the Indian Bill, it's all over. They've already passed it. They'll have to change their minds.
1: I'm warning you, Crockett. Go in there and you're committing political suicide. You know what do I think about your kind of politics? So you're actually hearing uh, Davy Crockett punch out some politician yeah. uh, at the end here. And there's a way in which uh, Trump um, maybe is influenced by that idea that like, a decisive thing that you could do is punch somebody out. He doesn't really seem to be the guy who does that, but you know he eventually gets involved with the World Wrestling uh, Federation. There's ways in which one of the things that he sees is this kind of rough and tumble version of reality.
2: Yeah, he's at least attracted by the theater of it. You know, you're, you're you're right. It's not like, you know, Donald Trump is, you know, actually going and punching out lawmakers in the halls, but a lot of his rhetoric is sort of about nostalgia for a time when, you know, people settled things, you know, often violently and with their fists, right? He's, he's talked about that a lot of his rallies. Back when we were back when we were strong and wise, you know, we used to rough up protesters. That that sort of thing. And I I think that if you look at the television of his youth, you can still see—you know—you can sort of see the mindset of the adult Donald Trump, who became a political figure. This notion of, you know, how red-blooded men solve disputes. This kind of "father's knows best" concept of masculinity. And as you say, one of the programs that we know that that Donald Trump, is, as a as a young boy, was fascinated by was he was he was a fan of uh, uh, professional wrestling and professional wrestlers, uh, and he ultimately. Would become as a a real estate and, and hotel entrepreneur, uh, it, it, it drawn into the world of wrestling. First hosting WrestleManias at his properties in Atlantic City, and then actually becoming a character in the world of the WWE, and sparring with Vince McMahon and having scripted fights with him. He is a WWE Hall of Fame member. You know, you, you can look it up. And uh, uh, again, you know, this was in a way kind of training. For the persona that he presented as a a political figure and leader, a lot of the stuff. If you go up and if you pull up video of you know one of his rallies. And look at it through the frame of 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 wrestling so much of it is is WrestleMania like theater you know the 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 cheering crowd the way that the crowd will get going and he'll step away and kind of raise his arms and you know encourage the sound to build like he's like you know like Hulk Hogan literally used to do that Mm -hmm. Uh, you know you know and and, uh, I think that he got a a lot of sort of rudimentary theatrical training in those early years in front of the tube
1: right and of course those uh, circles started to overlap even earlier with Jesse Ventura. And of course I live here yeah. in Connecticut where both Richard Blumenthal and Chris Murphy had to defeat Linda McMahon, wife of Vince in order to become U S senators. So, uh, so yes, we know, we know that somehow or other the, the style, the theatrical style, violent, but fake uh, of wrestling began to line up in kind of an interesting way, uh, with, uh, with American political theater. Um, So, you know, but it's... And so the fight, the fight becomes a very interesting thing to Trump. And so one of the things, early parts of your book that blew my mind, because really I've been trying to figure out, like, what does this guy watch except for himself on the news and people kind of talking to him through the, yeah. what does what he ever, you know, what movie ever meant anything to him? So you reveal two things. One of them was that he, he thought about going to film school, hard to know how seriously, but not so he could become some sort of auteur, but be, I mean, his idols weren't. Orson Welles or Stanley Kubrick, right? They were movie yeah. moguls, the, right. the business of it.
2: The, the the guys who ran the studios, yeah, yeah, uh, Louis Mayer and 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 those types. You know, I think he probably he couldn't imagine himself as as the the creative uh, even at that point. And uh, it you know it's it's funny you you hear him. Uh, uh, Errol Morris, the documentarian, did an interview with him several years back, where he t- asked him about the movie *Citizen Kane*, and uh, his, his Donald Trump's conclusion that he drew from it was, well, cl- clearly, uh, clearly Charles, Fo- Charles Foster Kane just needed a good woman, <laughs> so <laughs> like maybe maybe that was the best choice. He did not necessarily have have, have, have the instincts of an Orson Welles. Um, and another, I don't know if you were you were uh, uh, building building up to this, but another early story of one of his pop cultural fascinations was the reason that he was sent off to military school by his father as a young man was that he he discovered a collection of young Donald Trump's switchblades which he had because he and his friends were fascinated with West Side Story Mm -hmm. and again you know there's the 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 fascination uh, you know (laughs) <laughs> what's the thing that grabbed him you know as as, as a young boy about west side story wasn't you know maria i've just met a girl named maria it was it was the, it was the fights right uh you know and and, the, and that 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 theater of fighting. So, so you know, I think that was an interesting
1: bit. And, and so one of the other things you cited, I think it's from a Michael Singer profile in The New Yorker, is Trump on his plane and, and he's trying to watch something else and whatever it is. Oh, it's Michael, which is this kind yes. of Nora Ephrony, uh, John Travolta comedy about an angel. And it's just too much talking and stuff like he, he switches to blood sport. But even that has too much plot, backstory and narrative, right? He just wants yeah. the fights
2: and he, and he, and he has eric trump you know, the young eric trump in the plane with him and he has eric fast forward through it so he manages to watch it in about i think it was like 20 or 40 minutes by only showing the fight scenes right. uh so you know, that was you know, much much later in the campaign, I don't know if you are going to get into this, but but um, there was there was this joke that somebody made on Twitter at just after he became president that his his aides had created a fake gorilla, channel <laughs> the gorilla on the on, on, on the cable TV in yeah. the White House because Donald Trump, you know, o- only wanted to watch TV shows of of gorillas fighting, <laughs> and and it was it was fake. It was it was it was a joke on Twitter that somebody believed that the person who made the joke had to deny it, but you know. In fact, (laughs) Eric Trump's, he had Eric Trump create him sort of a rudimentary form of the gorilla channel on his plane watching that Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. So, you know, there's, there's a a kernel of truth in that.
1: Right. And to go back to Citizen Kane, I mean, the other thing is Citizen Kane, you know, really, it kind of gets back to a real question of a primal psychic wound. Uh, And so it's no wonder that Trump doesn't want to understand the movie, you know, because he would not want to think about whatever primal psychic wound Fred Trump. Or whoever yeah, per-
2: particularly in an entrepreneur i mean if you know if you read you know biographies or interviews with him he seems almost determinedly to avoid that sort of self-reflection you know and and introspection to the point where and i mean i'm not saying that this is not true but he has said several times that he's never cried right uh you know and that 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 may well be true, which, you know, certainly says one thing about a person. It also says another thing. If somebody just does not want to confront the notion of even that small amount of very common vulnerability.
1: All right. So I'm going to offer you one of my theories, um, which is that, uh, and I want somebody to ask Trump about this at some point, I'd be willing to bet my car, which is not a very good car, but I'd be willing to bet my car (laughs) that at some point Donald Trump owned a copy of the Don Rickles record, Hello, Dummy. Um, And one of the reasons I think that obviously is that a lot of Trump's humor has a lot of the Belittling, uh, transgressive, uh, yep. you know, ethnic, race baiting stuff that that Rickles did. But for me, because I'm kind of a comedy nerd, he also uses a Rickles beat, and and, and I'm going to show uh, you and the audience this uh, right here. So we're going to hear Rickles, and then we're going to hear Trump. Just listen to it for where the beat is.
3: That's right. I make fun of my own people. We're the chosen people. That's right. But what does it mean? We're human beings. Jew, Gentile, Irish, Negro, Puerto Rican. Ah, Puerto Rican, that's trouble. If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But...
1: It's nothing you can do, folks. Ah, second people, second Amendment people, maybe there is. It's yeah. actually, he's got a Rickles beat that's in there. He's doing that. Kind, you know, one of the things you write about in the book, James Ponawasik, is the way that Trump often exists in this kind of quantum state. Was that a joke? Was he serious? Should we make fun of him? Is he making fun of us? That's an example of a line that kind of works as a joke. But also could be serious.
2: Yeah, two two very good points. Number one, yeah, he totally even even more than the content does have that cadence of an insult comic. You hear that over and over in the rallies. You know, there are these people out there who said I couldn't win. You know, these experts—they're all an idiots. I won't name their names and embarrass them. I'll give you some names. You know, he, he does. <laughs> uh, you know, over over and over. And you saw it. Also, I think that was one thing that worked excellently well for him uh, on The Apprentice. Uh, that you know, he had this sort of. You know, kind of punchy style of delivery that you know worked very well in that format, and he absolutely, you know, and I think this is key is it's a key to his showbiz performa uh, persona over the years that ended up being very useful to and key to his his political campaign. He's thrived in these environments. Where he's simultaneously serious and kidding, and you know that's one reason, for instance, that he was such a, a voluble and popular talk show guest. You know, Letterman uh, had him on some 30, 30 odd times. You uh, know, he, he was great for a format like that, where he's sort of simultaneously a figure of fun, and yet also his you know it, uh, his 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 reputation, his stature is being inflated just by his presence. And about, you know, by Letterman teasing him about his wealth. And he'll constantly be saying things that, you know, sort of are provocative and kind of cross the line. They'll say, you know, I'm just kidding when I say that, folks. Right? And, you know, he and he adapted that very much to his campaign. I was being satirical <laughs> when, when I said Russia should
1: get Hillary's emails. You know, can't, can't you folks take a joke? Right, so we're going to circle back to the Letterman thing in the next segment, but uh, I want to just bring up one more thing that that you nailed down in a, in a nice way. Once again, I've been looking at this guy and figure, trying to figure out like who who mattered to him. Like one of the things that I concluded is he probably doesn't have a favorite Beetle because age wise and disposition wise, he probably was a little bit more enticed by Elvis. But we don't really know that he doesn't talk about Elvis. He just uh, that's just sort of an instinct I have. You do figure out that Hugh Hefner yeah. means something yeah. to him, right? This is me be one of the people that he looked at and thought, I could kind of be that guy.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, friends of his from his years in military school would talk about how Playboy was, you know, a, a big thing. Just Playboy and the Playboy lifestyle. Like, I'm sure that Playboy appealed to him in the way that, you know, Playboy appealed to a lot of teen boys at the time. But also Hefner in particular as a model, the lifestyle, Hefner you know, in a way was very much a proto-Trump in that he was not just, you know, a businessman. He was not just a business icon who launched this big American brand, but he was the mascot of the brand. He was sort of, you know, his chief customers. By embodying its principle and its lifestyle, uh, you know, in in himself, uh, he sort of became the face of it. And kind of the, the, the display model for the, you know, for, 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 the, for the Playboy lifestyle in much the same way that, you know, Trump would sort of be the kind of public face of the Trump organization through his, his media omnipresence. And, you know, there is this recurring thing both in you know the the tabloid trump of the 80s and, and and so on and the you know trump on the campaign trail of modeling this kind of rat pack era masculinity mm-hmm. you know uh I, I, to 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 your question about you know uh, 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 Trump's musical taste, whatever he has, is is, is funny, you know, uh, is an interesting question in and of itself. It's hard for me to imagine him having a, f- a favorite Beatle because, you know, his sensibility seems to be so much more, you know, Sinatra. It's like that mm-hmm. 60s, you know, rather than the countercultural 60s.
1: Right. So we're talking to James at the new book is Audience of One, Donald Trump Television and the Fracturing of America. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the shift in the television landscape and the way in which Trump, as a famous person, uh, began to march in a certain kind of lockstep with that. Yeah. You're fired. You, you're fired. I'm Icy Short, aka Icy Trump Short. And I
0: fire you. And I fire her. And I fire him. And I fire them. Excuse me, where's the lobby?
3: Down the hall and to the left. Thanks. Donald. Uh, Mr. Trump here wrote The Art of the Deal. Then he wrote a new bestseller, The Art of the Comeback. Two books. Wow. Well, that must have been tough, coming up with that much material. No. (laughs) Must have been hard getting started, though, right? First day, nine chapters.
1: Ron said his client had a rich uncle, but uh, Donald Trump.
0: (laughs) I like keeping a low profile. (laughs) Hey, Mr. Trump. Uh, hey, how you doing, uh, Will Smith? Hey, listen, you are getting a great house here, and and, and th- this is quite a deal you're getting for it too. Look, I tell you what, throw in another 50 grand, I cut the grass for you every Saturday. Thank you for ruining my life, Ashley. What did you do?
3: Everybody's always blaming me for everything.
1: All right, that's a montage of uh, Trump cameos in Home Alone 2, Spin City, and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I'd like to point out that in the Spin City cameo, you hear the voice of Alan Ruck, who is also known for Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and now Succession, two movies that you would probably want to cite at some point if you were trying to assemble some kind of Rosetta Stone for understanding the the rise of Trump through popular culture. Uh, and the person who does things like that is our guest, James Ponowazik, author of Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television, and the fracturing of America. Oh, I think we might have lost James Oh, We will, <laughs> We are We are reestablishing contact with James Ponawazik. So I'll tell you what, while we're doing that, I was going to subject uh, James Ponawazic to my theories, but uh, I'll just cover, I'll fill a little time here right now by saying that one of the things that I want to explore uh, is the way in which um, the reality television rose up at a very specific time. One of the things that I believe is that popular culture, in a way that's not entirely self-conscious, not entirely conscious, responds to things that are happening in the world. So I'm going to give you an example. One of the things that uh, James writes about, and we are working hard to reestablish contact with James, but one of the the things that he writes about, uh, one of the people that he singles out, is Richard Hatch. You might have heard this in the promos for the show, too. That... um, that Richard Hatch, uh, who was the guy who won the first season of Survivor, and if you remember him, he was this kind of doughy guy who was not particularly likable. You know, sociopath is probably too strong a word, but he was a sort of a manipulative, conniving guy. He wasn't as popular uh, with the audience or even with the crew there on that simulated island. Uh, as other characters. So people weren't really rooting for Richard Hatch to win. And then he did win. And it was sort of titillating to people, right? It was kind of, if you remember back to that time, it kind of was thrilling to think that somebody so unworthy could beat people. Like there was a guy there who was like a veteran, you know, was kind of a, you know, much more resourceful and conventionally heroic guy. That this other guy could beat that guy. But I also think – and that begins the rise of reality television. Um, I also think that one of the things that you were seeing there, uh, the beginning of reality television – so this happens in 2000. Think of what happened in the 1990s. One of the things that happened in in the 1990s is it was the beginning of our sense that the workplace and other public spaces of life needed a little bit more policing than it had been getting. And very specifically, for example – the kind of anti-sexual harassment training that you typically get in most companies today. It really started in the 90s. It started in particular as a result of certain court decisions. Uh, there was one that came out of Tennessee with a forklift company there that uh, where the financial penalty for tolerating a- an environment where men were allow- allowed to go around being jerks and making people miserable. Uh, was uh, that the penalty should be high, uh, and so this company had to pay this huge judgment, and so companies started to panic. They started to worry. They thought, "We." I mean, obviously, as we now know, not all companies had this reaction, but but it, the '90s was the beginning of this idea that wow, maybe we just can't let people run around the workplace being, for one, of a better term, a holes. Uh, and so that began to be scrubbed out a little bit. It was the first incursion, the first sense that maybe this this kind of Don Draper, you know, mad Men version of the American workplace was not going to survive. Um, and one of the things that I believe, one of my cultural theories, is that anytime we celebrate something, we're often taking note of its impending demise. So, uh, for example... When we were watching a lot of uh, TV shows like Northern Exposure, Twin Peaks, Picket Fences, they were all kind of out at the same time. That was really the, the, the exact moment where the kind of idiosyncratic small town that was celebrated in these series was beginning to die out, that this kind of genetic code uh, of CVS and Boston Market, and, you know, that was beginning to take over. Every small town was starting to look like another small town. So one of the things that I I, I concluded was that Richard Hatch and then all of the loudish jerk behavior, this notion of reality television as a place where you'd see a lot of guys walking around without their shirts on often being jerks, being, for want of a better word, a-holes, was a way of sort of transferring a culture that was in the process of being extirpated. It was in the process of being expunged uh, in real life. And so it was going to be preserved and celebrated someplace else. And that someplace else was reality television. And so then kind of it, you know, in the middle of that pipeline, you also get Trump as a reality TV star. And as we know, he is kind of that guy. He's not that different, as James Ponowazic points out, from Richard Hatch. And speaking of James Ponowazic, we have him back. So I've been vamping here while we lost you, uh, <laughs> and I've been having a lot a pro. of I'm sure you did a great job. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. So uh, I want to go back to where we I started it, as I thought I was throwing it to you. Uh, one of the things that you talk about is, you know, the kind of cusp that Trump occupies as he starts going down the, the, te- the television slide in 1980s. It's sort of, there's been this kind of anodyne television culture that you describe as the search for the least objectionable program. Flesh right. that out for us a little bit.
2: So, so the, the least objectionable program was a, a TV programming term in the you know in the 20th century that described the kind of programming that you put on back in the three network era when everything had to draw an audience of tens of millions. And basically, the idea was that you wanted to not give people a reason to change the channel. You know, it's just it's a, it's a much different programming strategy from what you have in the in in the cable era, and and, and, and what that meant was that things were sort of broadly palatable, less edgy, the good guys won, there was a little something for everybody, you know, that kind of like big tent Ed Sullivan philosophy of television, and that really dominated television's early decades. What would ultimately change that is the introduction right around the time that, you know, Donald Trump's talking to Rona Barrett and then becoming a personality in the 80s, uh, the introduction of cable, which slices and dices the audience. And creates it changes the business model. It creates a business model where you need to give people active reasons to tune in, not avoid giving them reasons to tune out.
1: Right. And so I think another thing that's happened that happens kind of at the end of that decade is, uh, yeah, because cable is coming along there are and also just because it's been going too long and there are other voices entering the fray. There yeah. are these people who begin to occupy our, right. te- our attention by saying, what if this is all just crap? And one of them, I, I think, is uh, Gary Shandling doing the Larry Sanders show where it's kind of this peak behind the scenes of just incompetent, self-serving, self-dealing you know, messes uh, of fragile egos. And then the other one in real life is David Letterman, who one of his fundamental questions in the 90s was, what if this is all just crap? What if what if none of it's very good? And so, as you said in the first segment, one of the people that he finds as a convenient target for this kind of exploration is Donald Trump. Here we go. Um, speaking of fights, what explain to me now what you were thinking about the mike tyson situation shortly after the verdict uh, was announced that he was was had been convicted he was guilty of the crime you had a plan now what what were you thinking what there? was i exactly. thinking yeah. i was
3: thinking that as soon as he gets out he's going to fight at my casinos yeah but you you can't buy no, I know, your way I of through course him. i'm only kidding when i say that folks um <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish my, i could say that <laughs> mike tyson
1: Right. So um, uh, Letterman was uh, interviewed uh, during the Trump presidency by New York magazine. He said uh, about Trump, he was a joke of a wealthy guy. We didn't take him seriously. He'd sit down and I would just start making fun of him. He never had any retort. He was big and doughy and uh, you could beat him up. He seemed to have a good time and the audience loved it. And that was Donald Trump, which is, I think, James Poniewozik very much the conclusion you arrive at, too.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, one reason that he's great for shows like that is that, you know, you don't necessarily want to book an actual business titan on the show, you know, success in actual business can be boring, but he was great television in that sense. And he was sort of this, you know, this, this, this kind of figure of fun that people, you know, he came on, and people knew just what they were getting. And 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 that sort of, you know, that performance, that, that sort of you know, quasi ridiculous, you know, New York braggy buffoon character that that Trump developed in the 80s and into the 90s, uh that's that's really a a natural fit for this kind of you know winkingly parodic age of irony tv that's developing on television at the time you know which which you're right you know that that was so much in the spirit of television then you know the simpsons when it came out was you know half a show about pushing back against the phoniness and ridiculousness of television and 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 letterman was certainly a conducive environment for that for trump
1: right so um so many things that I want to talk about here, but um, but first of all, I, the other thing that I was reminded of in all of this is Fran Lebowitz's line that uh, Trump is a poor person's idea of a rich person. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that's sort of like one of the things you're seeing in these Letterman appearances, too. Uh, but the other thing you're seeing, you, you, and you said, sort of a bragging buffoon, not necessarily an enticing person, but we're also entering, entering this era. I mean, it's not a new idea. If you take Satan out of Paradise Lost, you have a really long board poem, but we're entering this era where we're going to gravitate towards people who are not necessarily admirable, um, but they are going to occupy our uh, attentions uh, in a way that they maybe previously haven't. So while you were gone, I did a long disquisition on Richard Hatch, so you don't have to do Richard Hatch. Okay, great, great. But, but, you know, in in our popular culture, in our fictional culture, we're starting starting to see the Tony Sopranos come in, the people with whom we may empathize, even though they're horrific.
2: Um, yeah, you know, there was, you know, there, and there had been an element of this in popular culture, you know, the notion of like J.R. Ewing, the, you know, the villain that, that you love to hate. Uh, but it certainly flourishes much more as you have a more fragmented TV environment. And, you know, HBO can create a show like The Sopranos, which you couldn't have put on NBC in 1967, because, you know, it's selling subscriptions to people who want to watch something that they can't see somewhere else. And all these shows are kind of presenting... A, a sophisticated idea of morality beyond guys in white hats and guys in black hats. You know, they're showing you people who may be terrible, but they're very charismatic. They're fascinating. You know, you want to know what makes them tick. You can't stop watching them. And there are a lot of, you know, other factors in the culture that play into this and that cause these anti-hero figures to be popping up all over the place. You know, 9-11 happens, and suddenly you have a a, a, a figure in the culture, like Jack Bauer from 24, who sort of, you know, rises on the notion of this is an ugly world. And, you know, he may be this, this rough-edged guy who tortures people to get information, but look, this is, these are the ugly times that we live in. And sometimes it takes ugly deeds to get the job done.
1: Right. And I think another thing that happens, and yeah, Bauer's a great example of that because somebody like me, you know, left of center, peace, Nick, I'll be watching the show and going, There's a battery right in the room, Jack. Hook his nipples up to the battery and torture. <laughs> yeah. him. What is why are you what are you waiting for? And and I think another example of this, you used to write for Salon, I freelance for Salon a little bit later. So I wrote a piece for Salon the morning after the last episode of Breaking Bad. And I just yep. the theme of it was kind of that Walter had become a monster. Of course he had to die. Sorry, spoiler. But of course Walter Walter had to die. He, he had turned into a monster. And, you know, you know, Mr. Panawazik what those salon comment threads were often like. And oh, so sure. I, I got all these comments from guys. They were all guys, I'm sure, saying, oh, no, yep. he wasn't a monster. He was a hero. He was sticking it to the man. He had seized control of his own destiny. Uh, you know, there, how can you say he's a monster? He wasn't a villain. He was a hero. And I'm thinking, whoa, I don't think Vince Gilligan thinks that. But it's a little bit alarming that you do.
2: Yeah, he was he was he was taking care of his family, right? right. He's, he was he was looking he was looking out for his own, and you know it's it's sort of understandable in a way because you know kind of the way drama functions. You know, how do you keep people invested in a show like that? Well, for one thing, you know, you you set Walter White in all these these you know in it, it, it you, you put him in all these fixes where he comes out. With ingenious solutions, and it's tremendously entertaining and tremendously well told. And you want the story to keep going on, so that, you know, sort of naturally psychologically puts you in a position of kind of rooting for him, even if you do think he's a monster. And he's often opposed with people who are even more vicious than him. But, you know, that's as TV becomes sort of more artistic in a lot of these ambitious cable shows, it's doing something that, you know, a lot of great art does, which is it is asking you to draw the moral conclusions without holding your hand and marching you through it. And, you know, Breaking Bad, I I think is a very highly morally conceived show. I mean, it's got bad in the title, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it is telling you, this is the story of a man's journey toward evil. Uh, But, you know, it doesn't force you, to reach that conclusion to draw it and you know it 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 inadvertently tapped into a lot of ugly stuff among yeah I agree it was like largely guys who watched it who saw this was a this was a man you know just just being a man and doing what he had to do and you know in the words of uh uh Gustavo Fring you know Giancarlo Esposito's <laughs> character from Breaking Bad a man provides you know and that's what that's that's what to them you know Walter White was about it was like putting down suppressing the 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 prissy norms of society and embracing your manhood
1: right i mean it you know there was a famous charles adams cartoon years ago that just showed a movie theater audience and everybody in the movie theater, theater audience is crying except for this one ghoulish, you know, Charles Adams type guy who's laughing. Yeah. Um, and Joker. And, yeah. <laughs> Joker 2019. Joker. Yeah. yeah, that. But also I think, you know, one of the things that Breaking Bad illustrated was now it's like the, it's 50-50, you know, yep. half the audience is crying and half the audience is laughing. Half of the audience is deploring. Half the audience is cheering. We no longer have the same vision or the same set of Reactions to this, uh, the equal fact patterns.
2: Yeah. And, you know, this isn't, th- these aren't phenomena that are solely being created by media and entertainment, obviously. You know, I think that a lot of the reasons that you're getting these comment section dudes you know the, the same with you know the 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 manosphere on time, uh, online and you know in cell culture and so on is is this you know these it's this this manifestation of pushing back against larger changes in the society where you know women are more empowered where more people have 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 a voice and there's this you know sort of retrograde action against it that this this kind of reaction is is it's it's sort of channeling. It's it's tapping into that, even if inadvertently.
1: Alright, we're gonna take a quick break. Don't go anywhere this time. <laughs> I'm talking to the guest and the audience. As Larry Sanders would say, no flipping. We'll be back with James Ponowazik after this. <laughs>
0: And that's the news. Good night, David. Good night, Chet. Good night, Mika. Good night, Joe. Good night, Anderson. Good night, Rachel. Good night, Sean. Good night, Shepard. Good night, Wolf. Good night, Bull. Good night, Mush. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Richard Hatch. Now, back to Colin.
3: I'm not... A big believer in what we're doing tonight okay yes sir. i'm really not because you really should have had her be the presenter she's a much better presenter than him or anybody else in your team
1: yes sir mr trump with her signing off and having a negative attitude and not having any enthusiasm you know what
3: with a bad attitude she's a better presenter than anybody else in your team that's my opinion so you picked the wrong clinic and you picked the wrong presenter and then george and carolyn are saying oh i think angie's wonderful Okay, she's great. And I gotta listen to them. Do you have to? No, I I really don't, but I'm going to. You're a real wise guy, you know that? That's a dumb
0: statement. I was just asking if, you know, if it was a dumb statement.
3: Yeah, no, but you are a wise guy. There's no question about it. You know what, Aaron, you're fired.
1: So if people had no idea who Donald Trump was before The Apprentice, then uh, he was fully imprinted uh, on the American zeitgeist. Uh, Here's the guy who writes about it. James Ponowazik, author of Audience of One, Donald Trump Television and the Fracturing of America, also chief television critic for The New York Times. So – so much going on there with Apprentice, uh, but, but this is the place, right, that Donald Trump, the television character, really comes into full flower in a way that's somewhat predictive of his success in the political theater.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, you started this off with him talking to Rona Barrett in 1980 and saying that, you know, in the television era, you know, television rewards the the nice guy with the big smile. Well, this is not that guy. Right now we're in an era where Donald Trump can be the antihero on on TV and be a hit for it and be the guy who tells people that they stink and that they failed and that, you know, they're just not good enough and they're fired. And people people eat it up you know that is that's that is a big change from the the mass media era that he launched in just you know a couple decades before that
1: Right. I think another thing that changes, just to go back to that least offensive program concept, is, you know, that era of television was kind of about teams and functioning teams. So, I mean, if you got rid of somebody from Gilligan's Island every week, you know, the series would be over pretty fast. The whole idea was, how are these people going to get along on Gilligan's Island? You know, except for Chuckles the Clown, nobody dies on the Mary Tyler Moore show because you want all those people there every week. You want to come back to them. They're a surrogate family. They're a functioning team. Star Trek was about, you know, people who are trapped in this kind of office that's going through space. They have to get along. They have to figure out how to collaborate. And then reality television comes along. And reality television, a lot of these shows, Survivor, Apprentice, The Bachelor, they're about getting rid of somebody every week, which I think is sort of a fantasy that Americans have too. What if I could get rid of somebody I don't like every week? And Trump becomes the king of that.
2: And it's about you know, it's about a zero sum game, you know, right? Like, you know, yeah, gunsmoke was, you know, a functioning community and everybody's gotta to pull together to beat the bad guys. But but here it's somebody's success must come at your expense and for you to succeed, somebody else must fail. And somebody is out to like take your stuff, to take your prize away from you, and you have gotta work against them and get them booted off to, you know, get your get your place at the in this case, literally the table uh, in the boardroom. Uh, And, you know, that is just that's where Donald Trump lives. Like that's where that persona, you know, starting from the, you know, sort of pinstriped 80s Reagan era shark uh, back then, you know, that has sort of been the core of him. And now this is primetime TV
1: material. Right. And I think the other thing you hear in that clip, I hadn't really thought about it before, but you know, Trump is also the umpire. I mean, he's the umpire on that show. He decides yeah. who's in and who's out. And that happened on kind of a parallel track with TV news's erosion of its role uh, uh, as the umpire. Cronkite used to sign off his newscast with, and that's the way it is. And that was pretty much the way that it was. You know, Cronkite, Brinkley, those kinds of people could could tell you sort of what was going on in reality, uh, could make a sort of Solomonic judgment about something like that the Vietnam War. You know, now if Cronkite had to sign off, he'd probably have to say, and that's one possible interpretation of reality. Yeah. Uh, and But, but so we're, we're desperate for an umpire and news isn't really doing it anymore, although you see Trump doing it over there.
2: Yeah, and, and one thing that The Apprentice is doing for him is that it's bringing the powers of television to sort of edit him into a decisive leader, the guy who calls the shots, and he makes the decisions, and maybe sometimes they're tough or mean decisions, but they're the right decisions, right? Now, sometimes they weren't always the right decisions, as, pr- as producers on The Apprentice have said, he would sometimes make sort of arbitrary decisions in the boardroom because somebody had annoyed him and he didn't like the way they looked that day or whatever. And they would look at each other and say, well, we've got to make sense of this. There was nothing in the challenge that, that led to this. So they would retroactively edit it. But the cumulative effect is that the product that you get on TV is decisive, straight shooting, uh, well admired and authoritative Donald Trump.
1: Right. And I think, you know, by 2016, the umpires of news have so completely handed the keys over to some crazy drunk guy in the stands that that Mika and Joe aren't even in control of when Trump comes on morning. Joe, he could just call up any. he books himself. They're not even booking him as a guest for their own show. He's now in control of that
2: it's the guests that are driving the train and it's the the audience you know and, and what the audience wants to be you know provoked or entertained by that's that's driving the train and, and it's going on you know, as you're saying as the the apprentice is going on it's kind of this time of this broader crisis in American expertise and authority you know Enron uh, you know the the Wmds that didn't turn up uh, you know all this notion of you you can't trust the traditional call, shot callers to, to to call the shots
1: so you I mean you had and I'm sure you you enjoy these like in the postmortem they do at Harvard after the election, you know, you had Jeff Zucker from Z- CNN being booed by the audience, and, and and one of one of Rubio's advisors yells, "You showed empty podiums. You showed hours upon hours of unfiltered, unscripted coverage of Trump. This was not about interviews." And he's right, right, that ultimately CNN knuckled under two and said, "Look, you're just such great television. You're so good for the bottom line." Uh, you know, Moonves admitted that at CBS too. We'll just do whatever you want us to. Do do.
2: Yeah, uh, Moonbus, uh, this may be bad for America, but it's great for CBS. And, you know, Jeff Zucker, I mean, he was, he was the executive at NBC that put the, put the apprentice on. Jeff Zucker, you know, sort of understood instinctively that, you know, if your audience is telling you, you, they want something, you give them 10 times as much of it, which was one thing that sort of burned out the apprentice's ratings over time, frankly, because the, the extent to which they, they scheduled it and kind of, you know, burned out that, that franchise. But yeah, you know, what, what the audience was saying in the, in the 2016 election, Whether they loved Trump or whether they hated Trump was that they would tune in for this insane scenario where Donald frickin Trump, you know, the guy (laughs) from the 80s was running for president and he could say anything. And he was news even if he wasn't doing anything, even if he wasn't there and was just his podium, because who knows what's going to happen next and who knows what's going to happen next is basically the business model of cable news.
1: Okay, you get 60 seconds left. Do you have any th- positive, hopeful message for those of us who would like the restoration of sanity, uh, in our culture?
2: Sure, you know I think that people are capable of getting burned out on a television phenomenon, you know, as as, <laughs> as we were just saying, and, and deciding that you know they want to take some responsibility and and uh, you know turn to something more 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 sensible. And you know I I would also say you know maybe we've moved into the area of reality TV politics, but reality TV is not the only kind of TV that works on television. You know there, mm. there are more sort of you know it, 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 uplifting. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, positive messages that can come through and grab an audience. So, you know, it's not, this is not necessarily our
1: world forever and ever. Yeah, you know, Game of Thrones seemed like a really big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, to me, I was obsessed with Game of Thrones. Yeah. Now I can't believe I watch Game of Thrones. So maybe that is the way that we uh, have a little bit of hope for the future. James Ponowazek from the New York Times uh, is the author of Audience of One, Donald Trump Television and the Fracturing of America. It's great talking to you, sir. Yeah,
2: thanks so much. That was
1: a great talk. All right.